Hi, this is Carolyn Nee Lachlan, your hostess with the mostest of From Paper to People podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 156, Tootsie Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. You'll find us on Twitter at C McBrien for me and at Amaron underscore DM for Derek. And popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, what's new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Hi. Well, I had a chance to watch a couple more documentaries. You, uh, I was you a little your bummed out last week. Yes. I didn't have an opportunity to, to talk about any docs. So this week I'm making up for it. I'm going to talk about two. These both uh, dropped on HBO recently and uh, they were both pretty good. Uh, the first one is called Wild Card, The Downfall of a Radio Loudmouth. So this is the story of... Um, the DJ personality on uh, WFAN, the fan in uh, New York, the, mm-hmm. one of the largest sports radios in the U.S. Uh, the gentleman's name is Craig Carton. He's part of the Boomer and Carton radio show that lasted about 10 years in the U.S. Um, basically, after Don Imus got fired, these were the guys that, that took over right away. And so Boomer being the uh, the ex-NFL uh, quarterback, he brought the the credibility of the, of the sports personality and Craig Carton was known as a uh, like a loudmouth talk show host. Think think Howard Stern, but but sports specific. And so it's the story of Craig Carton and sort of his rise to power, only to um, address his demons, where he started gambling, he started being caught up in like Ponzi schemes, he started embezzling money, and and he had problems with like wire transfer fraud and stuff. And so it's this rise to rise to fame and power and then this tremendous fall that eventually leads to his arrest and and he obviously got kicked off the radio and he he went to prison, which is all revealed in the trailer. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about these guys, but the, in the two minute trailer, you get sort of all of this. And then it's the, you know, the real life story about how did all this happen. So it was entertaining. I didn't really know anything about either of these guys. So I, I enjoyed it. But I was reading some of the reviews and a lot of people felt that it was a real um softball kind of approach they really they really played up the the um craig carton's position they like tried to really paint him as a victim of circumstance and you know i don't think anyone was forgiving what he did because people obviously lost money in this but the the feeling from the reviews was that um you know it's it was a very uh very positive piece like it's almost like he and his people probably had a lot of influence over the final product. I mean, I was entertained by it. <clears throat> Excuse me. I didn't know anything about this guy, so I enjoyed it as a, as a piece of entertainment. How actually, um, you know, the sort of the slant of how the story is told, I leave that up to people who know more about it than I do. So that was the first one I saw. It's called Wild Card, mm-hmm. The Downfall of a Radio Loudmouth. Uh, the other one I watched, uh, are you familiar with the song who let the dogs out? Yes, I mean, who is? Of course, everybody right. is. Yes. So the documentary is called "Who Let the Dogs Out," okay. and it's very short. It only runs a little over an hour, and it's the um, the investigation 
there's a guy who basically became obsessed with the song and the and the history of the song and he wanted to understand a little bit more about where the song came from. Like it was performed and recorded by a band called the Baja men in 1998. It became a number one hit. It made tons of money. And then there was like all sorts of legal battles about ownership of the song and who wrote the song and who, who originally wrote it and who originally owned it. And so this guy over the next like five or six years was obsessed with finding out all the history and the details of this song. And he eventually put it together as like sort of a Ted talk kind of thing, which they, they turned into a documentary. And so it's this guy running through all the facts. And apparently it's not as clear cut as just some guy had an idea, wrote it down, recorded the song. It's every time you get to somebody who says, I wrote the song, they find somebody six months or a year earlier who recorded the song or a version of the song. When you play it, you're like, well, of course that's the same thing. And then it, they find someone a year or two before that. Who's like, no, 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 I invented the song and they play it and they're like, oh my, and like all these people have recordings of the song being performed. And it's like, well, is it just a cr crazy coincidence that they all have this, like who lets, who let the dogs out is a very short phrase. So it's possible that multiple artists could come up with that. But the fact that they sort of sing it in the same way on the same tune, and then they do the barking out, who let the dogs out, who, 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 like they do it all exactly the same way. It was fascinating to watch despite the fact that after about 20 minutes, you're like, Oh my God, stop playing the song. It just started getting <laughs> craziness. But uh, no, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, so again, it's called who let the dogs out. It's, it runs a little over an hour. It looks like I'm just looking at their IMDb page here. It's a Canadian documentary. So maybe I didn't see this one on HBO. Maybe mm -hmm. it was on one of the Canadian channels, but it was quite good. And again, I didn't really know the history of the song other than I knew the song was popular, but it made a hundred million dollars. And people got sued over it. And that's what the base of the guy said. He goes, when there's this much money at stake, everybody comes out of the woodwork and says, I deserve a slice of this pie. And, uh, at the, you know, again, by the end, he lays out all the facts he found. And he's like, I sort of leave it to you to figure out which one do you think should be getting paid and who should have credits and all the rest of that. But this one I felt was a very even handed documentary because the guy making the doc had nothing to gain. He was literally just this is my investigation and where it led. Here are the facts as I've been able to uncover them. You make the call. Whereas the other one was, you know, obviously not, not so cut and dry. So anyway, you, those were two really good documentaries. Well, I mean, the who let the dogs out was right. really good. The other one was entertaining. If, if even though it was sort of really heavily slanted on the one side. Yeah. You mentioned HBO and then maybe Canadian TV. I was going to say, where do you find all these documentaries? Yeah, I have, uh, I have a, a huge television cable package. I'm one of those people who just can't cut the cord and I have all the optional channels like, and they're constantly sending me free channels. They're like, we'll give you these channels for free for 60 days. I'm sure you want to give me free channels. I'll try them. Um, I'm one of these guys that I still want programming pushed to me. Like I have Netflix, I have Amazon, I have HBO, I have Crave, I have, you know, prime. I have all these different things. So I have the streaming services. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's I, nice just to be I, passive. And it's just nice. Have, yeah. yeah, like yeah. earlier this week, I saw that the movie from the 80s, Clue, with Tim Curry yes. as the butler, yes. was on TV. I caught the last 20 minutes of it, and I was like, man, I hope this is on again later. And then it was, and I caught the last 20 minutes again. I'm like, damn it. And then just today, my wife was flicking through, and she's like, hey, I see that the movie Clue is on uh, one of the streaming services. And I was like, oh, hey. You know, it's funny you bring that up. Mm -hmm. I was just looking for it. So nice. I got a couple things I want to mention. Yeah, one away, one is pop culture do? related, one is podcast related. So pop culture related. You mentioned the show Shits Creek. And and I have not watched this show, but my wife watches it. And I would just like to point out again how amazing it is that you can say Shits Creek, but you can't say shit. 
It's just, that's it's funny how that works. But anyway, I think I really need to watch this show just because before I came down into the studio to do the show tonight, my wife was watching an episode of it, and it's just full of Canadians. Like there was well, jo- of course, yeah. Like it's it's obviously shot in Canada, but I I couldn't I was impressed with the amount of Canadian actors that are in it playing small parts. John Hemphill was in it. Victor Gerber was in it. Saul Rubinek. Chris Elliott, I was like, whoa, this is great. So I don't know if these guys are in every episode. Uh, I felt certainly like Victor Gerber and Saul Rubinek were just kind of dropping into the show for a bit, but I just, I thought it was kind of neat. So lots of Canadian actors in it. So I might have to uh, take up doing that show. Uh, But the thing I wanted to, to mention that was podcast related was I wanted to share an email that I received. I think it addresses an important issue, one that I'd like to discuss. I'm not going to mention the name of the person who emailed it. That's not really important. Uh, but I do think it's important that I address the issue itself. So it goes like this. Chris, I've listened to your podcasts since the days of Dear Mr. Fantasy. I've enjoyed your shows for the most part. However, when you mention politics on the podcast and on social media, it makes me think you don't understand your audience. Try to stick to movies and baseball. No one wants to hear your takes on other issues. Are you really willing to lose listeners over politics? So... I'd just like to say that, yes, I do mention my personal beliefs outside of just pop culture. I used to do it on the baseball podcast all the time as well. I think it's a big part of who I am. I majored in political science in my undergraduate degree. I've always had a really keen interest in politics, but I think something needs to be cleared up here. Politics is debating the merits of levying taxes to fund education. Politics is about bylaws for local zoning. Politics is about infrastructure appropriation. Politics is not about gay rights. Politics is not about debating if white supremacists are good or bad. Politics is not about arguing the merits of, you know, public officials' abuse of power. Those, to me, are moral issues, not political issues. So to answer the question from the email, am I willing to lose listeners over politics? I'm not losing listeners over politics. If anyone chooses to no longer listen to the podcast for the reasons I just mentioned, then I'd be losing listeners over morals. So it's a completely different thing. And you know what? I'm okay with that. But if anyone stops listening to the podcast, they're going to be missing out on stuff like this. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, what did I say to my wife when she asked me to stop singing Wonderwall? to her I I don't know I said maybe oh my god maybe I've got a can so I'm opening this up right now <laughs> and I'm a girl drink drunk so I'm having a pop shop cream soda oh that's a good one that has Chris's stamp all over it yeah, okay. oh. you mean the Phantom Menace oh I'm not a fan of the prequels <laughs> Okay, okay, fair enough. I used to be a, a somewhat successful podcaster in the world of fantasy baseball. Oh, yes. Dax! Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> okay, so our movie this week is Tootsie from 1982. And full disclosure, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. It actually makes my top 10. Now, I've mentioned before... My favorite three movies of all time, as you know, are Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, and Star Wars. They're interchangeable, one to three. I always mention that. For me, number four is Meatballs. Five is The Empire Strikes Back. Animal House is six. Airplane is at seven. 
eight is the Blues Brothers. Stripes is nine. And Tootsie rounds out my top ten. So it makes my top ten. But unlike some of the Gen X movies that we've gone back and reviewed here on the podcast, uh, some of which I haven't seen for 25 years, my top ten movies I continue to watch over and over again over the years. And Tootsie's one of them. I told my wife about this movie quite a few years ago and I made her watch it with me. And um, she watched it for me, uh, with me again this week for the podcast. There is so much to talk about with this movie. But before we get right into it, Derek, any initial thoughts on the film? Yes. So I had not seen this movie until maybe about a year ago. Uh, you you had been constantly telling me, oh, we've got we to do this for the podcast. You should watch it. It was great. And I mean, I knew of it. I had seen the trailers. I had seen little clips here and there. You'd heard of um, it. Yeah, I mean, you, you go down the YouTube rabbit hole and eventually you find like someone posts clips of various movies and stuff. So I, I knew enough about it. I knew the broad strokes. And then about a year, probably a little more than a year ago, it was on one of the movie channels. And I thought, OK, I'm going to record it. I'll watch it. And I did uh, at your recommendation. And even then I thought, yeah, it was just OK. I mean, like, again, it, it was it was of its time. And I'm sort of watching it with with a more recent lens going, yeah. It was just okay. Again, full disclosure, I'm not a huge fan of Dustin Hoffman. I mean, I, I, I can certainly appreciate his talent as an actor. I mean, the guy won an Oscar. He's been in lots of great movies. I've just, I've never found him to be, like, I've just never been a big fan of his work, despite the fact that he is talented. Uh, so anyway, I was sort of, yeah, whatever, when I saw it the last time. Mm-hmm. And then, that, again, that was about a, a little over a year ago. And then you suggest on the end of the last show that we we get ready to do a review of Tootsie officially for the podcast. So I said, okay, I will watch it again. I will pay closer attention because honestly, last time I watched it, I was sort of half-assed watching it on Mm -hmm. my phone, cleaning up the house kind of thing. Um, But I thought, no, I'll do my due diligence and I'll watch it again. And I certainly feel that there is a lot to talk about here. Some very good things, some very bad things. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of curious as to where you are going to fall on some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, that's yeah, why we do it, these podcasts. It, it certainly won't make my top 10. A uh, mm-hmm. you know, little bit of a spoiler there. I, <laughs> I, I don't think it would necessarily make my top 50 or my top 100. It's just mm-hmm. not really. It's not your kind of movie. That fits in my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, I love an 80s comedy as much as the next guy. Probably even more than the next guy, unless that happens to be you. Um, but no, this this doesn't uh, this certainly doesn't hit my top list of any kind. And that's fine. I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, you said it's an 80s comedy because before we get right into the movie itself, I want to touch base on a couple aspects of the film. And the first one I want to touch base on is, is it a comedy or is it a drama? I think if you ask just about anyone about this movie, they'll tell you it's a comedy. Well, I think it was marketed as a comedy. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure you can just pigeonhole it, though, simply as a comedy. Now, Dustin Hoffman, who I know you don't really like that much, but I mean, he's done interviews over the years and he's always stated that this was never a comedy to him. Um, he actually gets quite emotional about it. And for him, the movie is about what it's like to be a woman, you know. And for me, um, you know, I tend to agree with it. You know, it's about the it's about the struggles and the glass ceiling and the double standards and how the world is rigged against women, at least in 1982, and still is today. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, there are funny parts in the movie, and I actually found myself laughing quite a bit, you know, as even as I watched it this week. But overall, I think what makes this movie special is the fact that it's not just a one-note, one-joke premise. You know, it's got so much more going on. Now, Hoffman once said that the core of this movie to him centers around 
you know, uh, the fact that the world judges women on this sort of predisposed idea that, you know, we've been brainwashed into thinking what a woman should be. And he said when he first started shooting the movie that Dorothy was the kind of woman that he never would have approached. You know, he never would have talked to, he never would have got to know. All because she doesn't meet some socially constructed, you know, image of an attractive woman. And as a result, there's so many women that he never gave a chance to. He never, you know, got a chance to meet because, you know, just for superficial reasons. And he actually started to cry in this interview that I was watching him. So I'm, I'm curious, do you think he was overreacting with that take? Well, no, I think I, I got to believe that if he's going to this, if he's bringing up these points, he's he's genuinely feeling these motions. I mean, despite his his talent as an actor, I can't imagine in an interview that discussing these topics, he would, you know, falsely cry to try and really sell it. I think right. I think from it's, what you're describing, it sounds like it's gender interview took place. And I don't know if uh, he was quite old in the interview that I, that I had seen him. So, I mean, it's it probably 25 years after the movie came out. Yeah. I like there's some things I didn't <clears> like. And we talked, you just mentioned, is it a comedy or is it a drama? So watching it through today's lens, I, I had some real, I had some real struggles with it. Mm-hmm. So understanding the time in which it was made. So we constantly bring up some movies that are just of their time. Revenge of the Nerds is, is a good example yeah. of its time. A lot of that stuff was hilarious. But when you look at it today, the characters did things that were criminal and despicable Mm -hmm. and like, you know, unapologetic. And they probably should have been all those things in the 80s when the movie was made. But different time, different perspective, different audience, different beliefs and all the rest of that stuff. I was really struggling with this movie in a lot of the same ways. So on its surface, I'm thinking, okay, when they made it in the 80s, they want to make a movie that like you said, talks about the struggles that women face and this male character that, um, you know, suddenly is experiencing these problems for the first time and sort of has like his eyes open to the real challenges that women faced. Uh, So on that side, I'm thinking, well, that's good. And in some cases it's played for laughs. Okay. Again, different time. So some of the things that you might've found humorous, um, for whatever reason uh, with the whole gender switch and, and, you know, the man pretending to be the woman and the, you know, the, the, the gentleman that thinks he's in love with her and the people on cast that want to kiss her and things like that. You know, again, I can see some of that being played for laughs, but at its heart, it's like they're, the joke is it's two guys kissing. Isn't that hilarious? And it's like, you look at that through today's lens and it's like, I kind of like, I felt a little off by that. It, it didn't like, I didn't find that funny for that reason. That premise, I don't find that premise humorous. And so when I'm looking at it from today's lens, I started thinking to myself, okay, if I knew nothing about this movie and I just sat down to watch it today, the the message I would get is um, that here's a movie where um, women can't do whatever it is, you know, that the, the women have these issues reaching certain goals, but oh, don't worry, here's a man who's going to pretend to be a woman to show them all how to do it right because they can't figure it out by themselves. And and I, f- I found that idea offensive. It was like, I know that wasn't necessarily the motive behind making the movie, but when you watch it through today's lens, that really, that theme felt very strong. It, was, it wasn't so much a let's empower women movie, although there's definitely that in there. All I kept thinking was they're being empowered by a man 
And it took this man pretending to be a woman to give the women the power to do these things. So the women characters obviously undergo changes and many of them gain confidence from seeing what they believe is another woman behaving in a way that is not typical and, and is starting to gain respect from some of the male peers. But I don't know. I really, I really struggled with this whole idea of the only way the women are going to get this respect is if they follow the lead set by a man pretending to be the woman. That's an interesting take on the film and, 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 and I respect it, but I mean, I, I didn't look at it that way and I, I've never looked at the film that way. I looked at more like it's, it's an out of work actor who cannot get work. So he decides to dress up as a woman and try out for this part that his friend had tried out for and didn't get. And along the way, he realizes what it's like to be a woman and the struggles that a woman goes through. And, you know, that's to me what the film is about. Um, So it's interesting that you look at it from the other point of view. I just find it interesting. Originally... Again, though, sorry, Chris, to cut you off. Again, I think this this is very much you need to understand the context around which the movie was first conceived and created. I, I don't believe for a second that any of what I just said was was deliberately thought of to be presented in that way when the movie was created. I think it follows the the guidelines you just spelled out. But when you look at it from today's point of view, I, I couldn't get that idea out of my mind as I watched the movie. And so many scenes just made me angry that all I kept seeing was the male point of view. The, the You know, again, it's it's the male character pretending to be a woman directing these other female characters to try and, you know, here, I'll tell you how to better yourself. It's like, yeah, but should that advice really be coming from a guy? Like I, I just had a really hard time wrapping my head around it. I understand. And it's funny you mentioned, you know, the movie, how it was first conceived. Actually, the movie was first conceived. Hoffman had the idea of doing a movie about a man who would dress as a woman and play professional tennis. I think it was kind of based on Renee Richards and what was going on there. Um, But this this idea just ling you know lingered for a long time and you know nobody they couldn't get it off the ground couldn't get a good script whatever and then there was another script that came along that was a little bit more true to this story about a man who can't get work as an actor and dresses as a woman it was a little bit more of a one note kind of thing so they brought in Larry Gelbert uh, from Mash to do some rewrites on it and things like that. so then the movie kind of the movie almost ended up being a kind of a mixture of the two and Hoffman brought a little bit more of the well, a darker side to the movie if you want but the interesting thing was in that process the conflicts that the director Sidney Pollock and the actor Dustin Hoffman had which is legendary so the, the director and the actor fought a lot while making this movie and as Sidney Pollock used to say they would fight the most on Mondays and the reason for this was because they had the whole weekend to look over the script and then they would come in with these opposing ideas on Monday morning of what should be done for the shoot that day. And Hoffman has always been labeled as one of the hardest actors to work with in Hollywood. Yeah, I'd, I'd heard that. Too. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, then this movie is semi-autobiographical. Yeah. And Pollock, Pollock used to always say that him and Hoffman would go into their trailer and they would fight like hell. And then they'd come out and they'd do it Pollock's way. Now, that was Pollock's take on things. And but there there was quite a few examples in the finished film where Hoffman's ideas showed up. So, for example, he, like I mentioned before, he wanted more of an edge to the movie overall, and it was his idea to have Dorothy fight the guy when they're when getting into the cab. Like he wanted more of that type of stuff in the movie, and Pollock felt a lot of it just didn't fit. Um, the one thing that they both agreed on, though, was as I mentioned, it, it couldn't just be a one note joke. You know, just about Michael Dorsey dressing up in drag 
began a role. It had to be about more than that, right? And like I mentioned, that's what makes this movie great, in my opinion. But man, these two fought like crazy. And it made the scenes where Paul... So Pollock plays the agent, George Fields. That's the director. Right. And it makes those scenes so, so good because it wasn't acting. It was basically just truth coming out in the scene. It was like art imitating life. You know, these these guys basically played themselves arguing in these scenes. And I saw an interview. It had to be recent because it was with Bill Murray. And Bill Murray was quite old. So like I say, it had to be relatively recently. But Murray was basically saying in the interview that Pollock and Hoffman just fought the whole time they were making this movie. But Murray would just sit back and watch these two guys and just think, man, if these guys could only just step back and see how good this movie is that they're making, you know, because he knew it was rounding out to be a really special movie, you know, um, whether or not the quality of the movie was a result of the fighting or in spite of it, I don't know. But it was a big, big part of getting the movie made. That's for sure. Now, I will say also, I want to touch base on the fact that this is a movie that's about and for actors. I absolutely love the opening scenes when Hoffman's both acting and and auditioning and then he's also giving lessons to the other actors in the acting class. And anyone that's ever done any acting at all can relate to those opening scenes. Um, Even the scene when he's putting on the spirit gum and he's applying the fake mustache and then it pops off. I once had to do a role on stage right when I was younger and I, I had to do the same thing. I had to put on the spirit gum and the mustache and, and the mustache kept popping off when I was backstage and I just, I could just relate to it. But um, the acting class scenes at the beginning of the movie were not originally in the script and Hoffman felt they needed something else, you know, in this movie. So after the shooting of the movie wrapped, he reached out to a, a, an acting coach that he knew in New York City and he convinced the studio to give him one camera and a couple of hours in the morning. So he had the acting coach bring his acting class, uh, and, like all the students, into a room in Manhattan one morning. And over the course of this morning, they just shot the scenes where him and Terry Garr are doing acting classes with the students. And it, for me, it really adds to the beginning of the movie because that's when we see that the movie is, is about actors. And it's really for actors too, I think. Michael Dorsey's not just an actor. He's, he's an acting coach. You know, and he struggles through auditions. He he struggles with directors, you know. He's waiting tables to make ends meet. And then all the ways, too, that Michael gets fired in the beginning of the movie are not just random events from a script. Each and every one of those things that Michael acts out, remember when he when Tolstoy is dying and, and yes. all this, all those things actually happened to Dustin Hoffman at some point in his own acting career. So they put nice. it into the movie. And... I just think regardless of how much of a pain in the ass that he was to work with, I know you don't agree with this, but I think he's one of the greatest actors of his generation. When you when you sit back and think of his body of work, Midnight Cowboy and Papillon, The Graduate, Kramer versus Kramer, this, like, I think the man's a legend. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly don't dispute his talent as an actor. I just, I, I've never enjoyed his work it's what well, what about the rest of the cast i mean like this i think this is one of the greatest ensemble casts i've ever seen like terry gar i i love i love 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 terry gar especially in this movie i just i want to go up on screen and just hug her <laughs> like it just like she gets caught up in this craziness that's going on and, and she's this vulnerable likable character uh, her her character basically experiences all the things 
that Michael Dar- Dorsey learns about women. You know, like she, she waits by the phone, she gets rejected, she's insecure, and he continues to ignore her. You know, he just disregards her feelings. So I think her character is really, really important to making this movie work. Jessica Lange, she was just so good. She won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for this role. And originally, she didn't even want to take the part, you know, but she did so much with it. Bill Murray, we mentioned, remember we did an episode on supporting actors? Yes. And I mentioned his role in this as one of my favorite supporting roles. He improvised almost all of his lines. And the thing was, when he did this in 82, he was already becoming a pretty big star. You know, in his own right, he had finished Meatballs, he did Stripes, Caddyshack, and he didn't even want to be credited in the movie. He did not, he didn't want his name appearing in the opening credits because he didn't want to take away anything. You know, he didn't want people thinking, oh, it's a Bill Murray movie, you know. Um, Charles Durning, that played uh, Julie's dad, you know, he's an Oscar-nominated actor. He was actually nominated the same year, uh, in 82, for uh, Best Supporting Actor for Best Little Whore Host in Texas. He lost to Louis Gossett Jr. for Officer and a Gentleman. Totally deserved it, I guess. Um, Dabney Coleman. I think, you know, you mention all the time, that guy. Dabney Coleman is the ultimate that guy from the 80s, don't you think? Yeah, for sure. Like 9 to 5 on Golden Pond. this from 9 to 5. Yeah, War Games. Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, Cloak and Dagger. And War yes. Games, yeah. 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 And George... And he always plays the same kind of guy, yes. right? Like this sort of person in an authority position who's a jerk. Like that's sort of like his bread and butter. It really is. And George Gaines, I like too. He's probably best known for Police Academy. Remember, he was Commandant yeah. Lassard. He was yeah. so good here. And even Gina Davis, this was her first film role. I just think it was a great cast. So even if you didn't like Hoffman, I just felt there's so many other actors and they were all at the top of their game in this. And before we get into the movie, one other thing I wanted to mention, I know it's based in 1982, but it had a lot of social commentary, I felt, you know, with things like gender roles and sexuality and actors and talent agents and soap operas and the, the whole Manhattan social pecking order. Like, like it's all fair game in this movie and it, it's all subject to commentary. Uh, Hoffman, I think, basically came away from this role realizing that, like I said before, Dorothy was the kind of woman he never would have approached in real life, you know, because she's not traditionally attractive. And I just think this movie has a lot of important lessons in it. I think it forces you to look at yourself and it forces you to look at the world around you in a different light. At least it should. That's what I think. But anyway, you want to just talk a little bit about the movie itself? Sure. Kind of break it down a little bit. So like I mentioned the opening scenes I really liked with the acting classes. But one thing I want to mention about the opening was Dave Grusin's score in this movie. I personally think it's perfect. And even though this movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, original score wasn't one of them. E.T. won the award that year, which I totally get it. That's <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But I think Tootsie should have at least gotten a nom. Like, uh, over I'd have to look at the other nominees. Poltergeist but... was nominated, an officer and a gentleman was nominated for score. No, I mean, this movie deserved it. Dave Grusin, oh, he was so good in this. And he did a lot of other movies too around this time. He did My Bodyguard and On Golden Pond. Like his, his score is very recognizable. He's got a real style. But uh, anyway, so Dustin Hoffman is basically playing himself. At the beginning of this movie, he's this difficult actor to work with. And I love when he's on stage doing the audition. And the, the, it's dark in the audience, but you can tell there's a director out there talking. And he's like, uh, excuse me, um, uh, you know, my, is my acting interf- interfering with all your talking, you know, and all that stuff? So I just he basically is playing himself. Yeah, the um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. Were talking before about how this this opening part was added in afterwards, and how it it the addition of these scenes give his character uh, more of a backstory, and and maybe you understand his motivation a little better, and you understand his skill set, uh, which I do think helps. I think that during the course of the movie, when you see him uh, as uh, Dorothy providing help to the other female cast members and providing that coaching you really get the sense that that's coming from the place of uh that he's already he is a coach by nature you've already seen him as an instructor so he's he's using this skill set that he already has but as you mentioned he's now in a position to hopefully have a slightly different perspective now that he's experiencing some of those same pains that that the female uh that the the, the women are having so uh, I, I definitely think that adding that stuff at the beginning did uh, did add to it. I think if it was missing, some of those scenes might not be as clear. Or again, it might really come off as, well, I know more than you simply because I'm a dude. And it's like, although that subtext might be there, especially if you look at that from today's lens, uh, I don't think that that um, was, was the intent when the movie was produced in the 80s. Uh, one thing we, you and I always talk about with these 80s movies is how much everyone is smoking and there was a lot of smoking in this movie. <laughs> like the, yeah. the surprise party. They, so at one point, somebody's passing a baby around and, and everyone's smoking <laughs> this baby. I'm like, holy smokes. This is, this is just crazy. Um, but anyway, so uh, Sandy goes to her audition at Southwest General and I noticed a couple of cameos. So the stage manager, assistant stage manager, whoever she was, was Ellen Foley from Night Court. She was also the the the, the girl that did the female uh, part of Meatloaf's uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Hmm. Do you remember Ellen okay. Foley from from Night Court? No, she, I'm she, looking. I've got the IMDb yeah. open here. I, I'm looking at the picture, and I'm like, no, and she I, does not look familiar. And I at all. I checked the credits, and it's not in there. But I was sure there's a scene when when, when they go to, to the audition there. And there's, there's a girl who's leading a tour guide. It's like a tour guide is like leading yes, people. Yes, I remember right? that. I was sure that the tour guide lady was Patty Lapone. And I, I was like, the, I, Wait, who is that? She was a, she's a very, very famous Broadway actress. She's made a couple okay. movies here and there in small roles. But she's, most, she's, a, she's a legend on Broadway. And I was sure it was her. But uh, anyway, so. I'll take your word yeah. for it. So then, of course, the scene where Michael Dorsey finds out that Terry Bishop isn't on the show. So he's all mad. It was supposed to be his part because he's doing the Iceman Cometh. Oh, Iceman Cometh. Yeah. Right. And he goes to his agent's office and there's that scene. Like I say, just, I thought it was a brilliant casting decision to let Pollock play the agent because he just, it, it like almost allowed him to exercise all the ghosts of them working together. You know, like I, yeah. I thought it was great. Did you, did you at least enjoy the dynamics between the two of them in the scene? I know you don't really like Hoffman, but, to get and not enjoy their 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 back and forth. Well, I mean, I I had you had mentioned previously about Dustin Hoffman's uh, reputation for being difficult to work with, and I knew that Sidney Pollock uh, was play the director was playing this part, so I certainly got the sense that there was some real life hostility being you know channeled in this scene. So again, I mean, it was decent. Uh, I didn't necessarily laugh. I find that these movies where it's like. Movies about movies, mm -hmm. movies about actors, right. movies about the audition process. It's like they don't interest me largely because that's that's not anything that I'm interested in doing. I have a lot of friends that are in theater, so mm -hmm. I've, I've been around it. And so I understand broad strokes uh, and I can sort of identify with some of the characters. It's like, oh, I have friends that have gone through that. But 
I don't know. Again, I find it's very um, like self-aggrandizing. It's like it's like the movie, per, the, the people making this movie made it for people like them. I'm like, well, that's great. But I, I'm not like you. I'm just a general movie person. Like I'm, I want to be entertained. And I just found that uh, with this this movie, not so much uh, and not as bad as other films, but they spent a lot of time sort of going uh, going over like the specific details about, well, if you are an actor, these are the things that you need to know. Now, obviously, the, the movie's about an actor, so it has to include that to make sense. But I think that might be part of why I didn't really dig the movie as much. Cause it's like, honestly, an actor can't find work. That's too bad for that actor. I, I really couldn't care less because I'm not an actor, and I but I can respect how difficult it is. Again, I have friends that have been struggling to get into the the acting profession for years, um, and I can I can re- recognize the difficulty there. But yeah, and maybe really. and maybe that's the thing for you, Derek, is the fact that you know Michael Dorsey is not a likable you know uh, protagonist. So he, he I don't think he's supposed to be. Yeah, likable. I think it's the whole point is yeah. you dislike him as a dude. But you respect him as a woman because of the the chances that he's willing to take. And, mm-hmm. oh, my God, he's able to do these things. And he it's almost like, well, if this doesn't work, who cares, right? It's al- like that was sort of the impression I got was it reminded me of the way people use the Internet today. It's if I can go on the Internet and be anonymous, I can take on any persona I want. I can pretend to be a man. I can pretend to be a woman. I can pretend to be an adult, a child or whatever. And I can talk about anything I want and present any opinion I want because I have that shield of anonymity and it maybe makes me bolder. Maybe I I have this stirring controversial opinion on a topic that I would never talk about in real life because, you know, it's so controversial. But on the Internet, if I can talk about it anonymously, maybe that's my forum to do it. And, And that was sort of how I was equating this role of Michael Dorsey as Dorothy Michaels. It's like, well, when he's in the the disguise as a female, he feels very empowered to to do things and try things that maybe were he was unsuccessful with as a man or again, he's trying to do things in a way that's different than the other women are doing it um, to try and give himself an edge. I don't know. I just again, I, I really had a lot of problems with the 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 subtext of this movie as it would seem from today's lens. I don't know. Like I didn't look at it so much as it was Michael playing a part. I felt like Dorothy was a major character in the movie unto herself. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't know. I, that was my takeaway from it. Um, but I, I like. So he goes in as as Dorothy, and the first thing that the director says, he just looks at her and says, uh, "Yeah, you're not right for this part." <laughs> and he's heard this. Michael has heard this so many times before. He and he figures. Uh, if this isn't me, almost like you said, like I'm kind of hiding behind a character. So he decides to take action, right? And then he just basically gets aggressive with the director. I like he says, I suggest you take your hand off me before I knee your balls right through the roof of your mouth. <laughs> and so everyone's like, whoa, what? <laughs> and so they, they give her a reading, right? And then this is where I thought was one of the better laughs in the movie. When the producer says into the microphone, I'd like to make her look a little more attractive. How far can you pull back? Yeah. <laughs> The camera guy says, how do you feel about Cleveland? You know, like, I don't know. I just... that reminded me of the scene in a league of their own mm-hmm. uh, about the female baseball players where they're, they've got all uh, Gina Davis in that one too, where they're doing the interviews with all the, the players and they're like, here's so-and-so and here's such and such. And they're all like these close up beauty shots. And then they're like, and here's Marla Hooch. And she's way out in the outfield <laughs> waving because <laughs> she's like not attractive to look at, but she's such a good baseball player. And they wanted to include her in the montage. That was immediately where I thought of that. That it sort of made that connection to the, to that joke. One thing I was, 
just thinking about uh, when, when I mentioned before about Dustin Hoffman with getting emotional about playing the part. One thing that I remember he mentioned in that interview he, about how he, when he played Dorothy, he would touch his hand to his chest. And he did that numerous times as Dorothy. Mm-hmm. He'd put his hand there. And he said that he added that to the character um, to express her feelings, right? And, 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 and like I say in the interview, what I, he, but he, the point he was making, he got upset again. He got all, he was, got emotional, was crying about it. Because he mentioned, he goes, men never do that. That's something only women do. And it's almost spiritual, you know? Like, again, Dustin Hoffman never felt this movie was a comedy. As much as, you know, we're talking about the funny stuff in it and stuff. It was just so much more than that to him. And like I said, I, I, I tend to agree. I don't, I, I think that's why it was well, a big hut with audiences too. And with yeah, critics. But again, you know? I think that, I think Hoffman's right in the sense that the character of Michael Dorsey pretends to be Dorothy Michaels, but isn't doing it for a laugh, right? Like the motivations of the character for taking this chance for, for, for pretending to be a woman is a legitimate, I can't get a job. It, there's a real, like, it's not like I'm going to do this and look how hilarious it is. And I think that Dustin Hoffman, the actor had to take it just as seriously in order for it to work. And which is why it, it does work. Um, but yeah, like you said, there's a lot of humorous lines in this and there's a lot of uh, things played for laughs, some of which don't hold up as well. But some of them like like, again, certain things that, you know, like you said, the line of, you know, I'm going to knee you in the nuts. It's like, <laughs> you know, hey, that kind of thing is always funny. Yeah, <laughs> The movie wasn't originally going to be called Tootsie. The working title of this film was Would I Lie to You? And apparently the title Tootsie came from Dustin Hoffman's mother. And he actually paid uh, homage to her in this movie. This Remember the scene where he has to wake up at like four o'clock in the morning, you know, to get all his makeup on and the alarm, excuse me, the yes. alarm clock goes off and he wakes up. There's a photo of his mother right bes- beside the alarm clock. That's he, he put that into the scene. Um, and then I love when he gets all made up as Dorothy in that scene and then goes and wakes up Bill Murray and Bill Murray yes. goes, mom. <laughs> yeah. it was, it was yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, so he, Dorothy goes in to shoot the first scene on the soap opera. And of course she, she doesn't like the fact that she's supposed to kiss George Gaines's character. And, and, yes. and she's trying to talk to the director because that's Michael Dorsey arguing with the director, right. You know, about yeah. this. And, and he's just too busy to listen to her. And, um, and, but Dorothy, well, I don't even think it's that. I think it's, again, it's, it's a commentary. The director's not listening to her because he believes it's a woman and, and, a uh, a, a like a petite woman at that. Right. I mean, I think a lot of the male characters in this movie are large, tall, big dudes. And the women, I mean, typically men have bigger body types than women anyway, but I think that that is really a deliberate choice in the casting of this, that most of the, except for um, Dustin Hoffman, most of the male characters are quite tall and, and Mm -hmm. tend to tower over the women. And then, you know, in the scene, he doesn't get the director's attention. So she just does what she comes naturally and she hits the guy over the head with her with her papers and she changes the lines. And it makes this impactful statement. And so I love in that scene that the assistant director says, move in for a close-up. And like three of them are like, not too close. Not too close. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was funny. And and I really liked after that scene because any good director will pace a movie. And you and I have talked about this so many times. Oh, yeah. Funny, you know, and then serious part. And then like it, it's got to ebb and flow, right? And after that huge laugh, the next scene is Michael's back in the apartment talking to Bill Murray's character, Jeff. And he says, I think Dorothy's smarter than I am. I, just, I wish she yeah. was more attractive. 
you know? And I think you can just tell, like, Dustin Hoffman loves this character. I don't know. I, I think this movie is incredibly endearing. But uh, um, then when, when he's he gets uh, he gets to go over to Julie's house or her, to her apartment to read lines, and he's trying to pick out what to wear, and Bill Murray is, like, helping him. <laughs> And my, trying to. Yeah, Michael's like, I can't wear these. She's seen me in all of these. I can't wear that. It cuts me across the chest. It makes me look too hippie. <laughs> like, men never obsess about what they have to wear. Ever. You know? So it's just so funny. Um, a few things, I think, date this movie. You know, you touch base on a couple. Just a few? <laughs> when um, Let's hear your list. Well, when, when Dorothy goes to Julie's apartment, and Julie asks Dorothy if she wants a glass of wine, and Dorothy's like, no, no, no. And then Julie mentions that she has a baby. And Dorothy's like, oh, I take it you're divorced? Oh, no, oh, no, I've never been married. Maybe I will have that drink. It's like a, a, a woman that has a baby out of wedlock. Like, that's the thing that's upsetting. <laughs> you know, and that's, yeah. I thought that was, that kind of stood out to me. But uh, there was... Again, I, again I, I sort of thought of it as it's of its time. I didn't really pay much attention. I, the thing that really, for me, dated the movie were the phones and the answering machine and the like that was something that always stands out especially in today's day and age you know you can really tell a movie's age on whether or not the people have mobile phones and whether yeah. what kind they have yeah, you've mentioned and that before yeah yeah there was a whole thing about like when the phone rings oh well you answer it well no cuz if it's for this person and they hear a man but if it's for that person and they hear a woman right. and then the the compromise they don't answer it in that scene but the compromise is they get an answering machine so they can screen the calls, which you actually see them doing that later. Right. Um, so I thought that was a clever way to sort of address the problem and get around the problem. But it was certainly because they drew so much attention to it. It really dates the movie. You know, another thing, too, is how some of the characters are uncomfortable when they think someone is homosexual. Yeah, well, for sure. Like Julie is like that with Dorothy and Sandy's like that with Michael. And Bill Murray is like that with Michael. And that's not something that sits as well with today's no, audience, you know? So that, that dates it as well. But I, I didn't really get the sense that Bill Murray's character felt that uncomfortable. I think, it, again, maybe, maybe it was just the comments he made. You know, he, yeah, I think it was more of a, this, you know, again, of its time, it's a, well, how do you, how, what do you do when you learn that someone may be gay? It's like, you make fun of them. Ha ha, isn't this hilarious? Mm-hmm. It's like, that was more the impression I got. Not that the, the character is supposed to be feeling, you know, threatened mm-hmm. or insecure or whatever. It's just, this is what you do. And and again, that just one more thing that I thought, oh man, this, this is not from today's lens. It's like, this is not appropriate. He makes a comment at one point. And he's like, I'm just worried you're going to burn in hell for doing this. You know? So I just, I don't know. Um, but I mentioned before, the movie does explore a lot of different themes. And, and, and one, I, I don't think you should overlook is the fact the way women treat each other sometimes, you know, Sandy at one point sees Dorothy going into Michael's apartment and her comment to Michael is, I saw that fat woman going into your apartment. And then she also mentions like, did you see that cow that they hired for the part? She's not tough. She's a wimp, you know? And Julie makes a comment about Dorothy's heavy use of makeup and her mustache problem. I, I don't think, I don't think Julie's being unkind, you know, when she says those things. Um, in fact, you know, she does mention that, that Dorothy has a cute figure, I think, at one point. That's, I, that's why I like Jessica Lange's character. You know, instead of just being this bimbo nurse that's sleeping with the director, she actually has quite a lot of depth to her character. And Jessica Lange is awesome in this role. She's just awesome. I like when she says how she wishes that a man would just walk up to her 
and directly say that he finds her attractive and wants to make love to her. So at the party, Michael approaches her and says that. He's like, truth is, I find you attractive. I'd really like to make love to you. And she throws a drink in his face. I just, I don't know. I just, I thought it was, it was interesting, you know? And, and one of the best lines probably comes from her when she says, don't you find being a woman in the eighties complicated, <laughs> you know? dates the movie maybe yeah there were there were a lot of comments about that like you know it's just oh we can be ourselves and you you know those kinds of things again in the in the context of the movie they're they're played for laughs but uh you know when you look at it bigger picture the the comments are are very true so it's it's sort of that double meaning right where it's it's the character saying it is saying it seriously but us the audience are like haha that's hilarious there were some things i was laughing at i found this time watching it that were kind of uncomfortable. So the one that kind of stood out to me was, remember when Dorothy's talking to the battered wife when she's laying in the hospital bed? Like I, yes. I found myself laughing, almost like uncomfortably laughing at that scene because I think Dorothy handled it very honestly, almost, almost too honestly. Like she, she, remember she says, if it was, if it was me, she was like, I would just grab something and I'd just throw it at him. And she smashes the flower pot against the wall. Yeah. And I was just like laughing. And the actress is like, that's not her line. I can't work with this. And Dorothy's, oh, shut up. <laughs> just, I think that might have been the biggest laugh of the movie for me. I don't know. I, I didn't find that funny at all. Again, I think I think I'm watching it and it's like this scene about a battered woman. And, and the point they're making is good that at, in the, at the time, the script says, oh, well, you know, the woman has to go to therapy. Like, blame the woman. And it's like, you look at it through today's lens, you're like, no, it's the husband. He's a jerk. He's an abusive, you know, he's abusive. The woman should uh, not feel that she's a victim. She should not feel she has to get therapy. I didn't laugh at that scene at all. It did make me feel uncomfortable, but not for any of the reasons you just described. No, but I laughed at it, I think, because not so much because it was funny, but because of the shock value and and the, the line itself. Like, I mean, the scene is about empowering women to fight back and to take a stand. For sure. And And if you don't believe in that, then it's like, oh, shut up. You know, like, that's the way I took it. And I think it's reinforced when she's doing the scene with uh, Julie after uh, Julie's character has been sexually harassed, I think by George Gaines' character. And Dorothy goes off script and she's like, I'm going to get every woman on this floor a cattle prod and I'm going to instruct them to just zap them in the padubies. And then she's like, secretary, can you call me up a farm supply store, please? And Jessica Langitel is just like holding back laughter at this. There's just something I think that's empowering about what Dorothy does on the soap opera and obviously, like, it strikes a chord with women across, you know, the country in the movie. But the thing is, the men don't like it, right? Those people, of course, because those people that are in power don't like it when the power the power structure is threatened, right? Uh, by the way, Chris, you owe me a quarter. You call it a soap opera instead of a daytime drama. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's a line for the movie, too, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That, that That's kind of what's going on here. And men like like the director especially they don't like it when they get called out on their bullshit, you know? Yeah. And I love when Dorothy says to him, I know you a lot better than you think I do. It's just a yeah. great line. Right. And he's been getting away with this stuff forever. He even says as much. And then George Fields, the agent, he mentions, he goes, he, he says, I got a secretary who wants to be like Dorothy Michaels. I'm ready to fire her. You know, Like these men don't like the power structure being threatened in any way. And, and so, and I agree 100%. And like I said at the top, there are things that are good about this movie and things that I feel are not good about this movie. And that idea of 
the women empowerment, I think is very strong message. I think in at the time in which this movie came out, I think it was an important movie for, for women and for the women's movement and for, for men to see that like, Hey, you shouldn't be treating the women differently and, and you should be treating them with respect and don't be calling them honey and Tootsie and baby. You should be calling them by their names and you shouldn't be slapping their butts. Like, I think from that point of view, the movie does a good job of, of driving this idea of the, of women empowerment. I just, again, looking through today's lens, I have this real issue with all of this advice is coming from a man dressed as a woman. Mm-hmm. It, it just, that just, I, I couldn't get, I can't get around that. Yeah, no, I, I get it. Um, I want to touch base a little bit on when Julie invites uh, Dorothy up to her father's house for the weekend, that whole sign. Um, the song, It yeah. Might Be You. It, now, if you remember back, you and I did um, a whole episode on movie songs back on episode 125. And I mentioned this as one of my favorite movie songs. I think it's absolutely perfect in the context of the scenes. It's basically a montage of Dorothy spending time with Julie and, you know, Michael and so he's falling in love with her. And the song was nominated for an Oscar. Um, it lost to Up Where We Belong from uh, Officer and Gentleman, which I get. That's fair. You know, I get, you know, I, I, dis- I disagree with it, but I, I get it. Um, yeah. I mentioned uh, before the film was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Jessica Lange uh, was the only winner for Best Supporting Actress which was a little bit surprising too, because Terry Garr was also nominated in the same category. And usually, you know, when there's two actors or actresses nominated in the same category from the same film, they tend to split the vote. They split the vote. Yeah. Neither one of them walks away with a statue because they split the vote. Yeah. And it didn't win for best original screenplay or director or best picture. Unfortunately, Gandhi came out that year. And if there's one thing the Academy loves, it's an epic historical movie. Even Even if it's not a great one. Uh, and and ben, hey, we just did Lord of the Rings, like the same deal, right? Yeah. Here's a big epic. Of course, it's going to win the Oscars. That was good. I didn't. Uh, Gandhi was okay. It wasn't great. And Ben Kingsley won for best actor for playing Gandhi. He wasn't even an Indian. Like you know, I don't know. So back to the movie just a little bit. Uh, Michael he keeps getting himself in all these crazy situations. as Dorothy that kind of come to a head at the end of the movie. And I love his line at one point. He just says, "This is a nightmare." And it's so true. Like, Les sits on the swing with him. And when Les swats away the fly, Dorothy just covers up her breasts. Like, and then is like, Julie tells me you're not married. No. You want another drink? No. <laughs> like, all these things happen to him. Um, Julie thinks Dorothy's a homosexual. You know, Les proposes to her. Then Dorothy goes home and George Gaines basically sexually assaults her. And then when Bill Murray comes in and sort of rescues her from getting, you know, almost getting raped. The first words out of his mouth are, you slut. Like, and the line got a huge laugh in the movie theater. I actually saw this in the movie theater when it first came out. And this line, like I say, huge laugh. But it just shows that the, it's like the blame is placed on the woman in this situation. It's just so wrong. It's just, ah. But I mean, I can understand why that scene would get a laugh because you know, Bill Murray's character understands that uh, Dustin Hoffman's character is a man, even though he's dressed as a woman. So he knows nothing was going to happen. Right. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the the situation where if if it really was a woman, it's like, well, I don't know what's going mm-hmm. on here. Maybe there was something. Maybe they were planning to do something or whatever. It's clear when he comes in, it's like, you know, and the guy runs off and he says the line. It's 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 played for laughs because there's that knowledge that those two characters share that the other character doesn't. 
and that the audience obviously is in on as well. But but no, to your point, I, I again, I think the subtext is is problematic. Yeah. And then Sandy comes over and Michael gives her the chocolates and she's like, oh, look, a card. He's like, no, no, don't read that. I, I, I was really angry when I wrote that. <laughs> and then she's like, thank you for a lovely night by the fire. Love less. Who's less? <laughs> he's like, well, he's a he's a friend. Why is he thanking you for a lovely night by the fire? Oh, my mind's a blank. <laughs> and she freaks out. I, I will say, Terry Garr and Bill Murray have both been in bigger roles prior to this movie. But these are some really meaty roles for both of them. The, 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 the whole cast is just so good. I, I don't know. I still think it's one of the best ensemble casts I've ever seen. And then the finale of the movie, when um, Julie basically says to Dorothy, they can no longer be friends or have any relationships. So Michael knows it's over. It's over for Dorothy. So she does what she does best and she goes out in style by going off script and they do the party scene live and they do the big reveal. I think I liked Les's reaction the best when he just drops his sandwich. Yeah. (laughs) And I've mentioned this before. Comedy is never funny to the person that it's happening to. And this is on full display here because it's not funny to Les, you know, to find out that he's just proposed to a man, right? Yeah. But I don't know. I, I just think the movie wraps up, you know, Michael and Julie are walking on West 42nd Street and I don't know. He's like, the hard part's over. We're already good friends. It just kind of opens the door to them having a, a relationship. I think this movie was way ahead of its time. I, I, you probably disagree. But I just, I think in 1982... It would have been really easy just to make a one-note movie about an actor that dresses up in drag to get a job. But this movie is so much more than that. I don't know. That's what sets it apart for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wouldn't necessarily say ahead of its time. I think it came out at exactly the right time. I think it it, uh, it, it had, in the moment, it had an important message. I don't necessarily think that the, the message has aged all that well, just again, for the reasons I've already stated. Right. Um, but I do want to talk about the ending for a bit. Sure. This, again, this is one of the reasons I, I wasn't wild about this movie. Is, okay. So we've already established that uh, Dustin Hoffman's character has now been offered this this one-year contract extension. Yes, but the he standard has no, contract. He has no desire to continue to play this this role as a woman. Obviously, this is a lot of extra work for him. And and it was sort of a, I did this because I needed a little bit of money and I got a chance to work. And he, he you know, got what he wanted out of it. And now he's like, well, I don't need this thing. And he's he's asking the agent, like, you've got to get me out of this. You've got to get the lawyers. And, and the agent has that scene with uh, with Bill Murray when they're listening to the answer machine where he's like, well, maybe there's a morals clause in your contract. And you can do some zany, outrageous things to right. get out of it. So it's clear that his character has um, is not in the situation that he hoped to be in. And I would think if that was me in that situation, I would now be thinking of all the different ways to try and get out of it. Because he even threatens a couple of times to say, like, I'm just going to go in there and reveal myself. I'm going to demonstrate that I'm going to take off my makeup in front of people to show them that I'm not who I said I was. And that's it. Problem solved. I mean, whole series of new problems, but problem solved. So when they have this opportunity to do the live scene and he ha- he does this big reveal, the, the, the monologue he gives, the rambling, it goes on and on. It's so incoherent. It makes no sense. It's this long, drawn out I don't know. I just. I guess he just he's mind, making it up as he goes, right? He's making it up. But I'm my, the point I'm trying to make is, I would think that by now, he's already given some thought to what what would I say if given this opportunity? Like, I don't know. It just seemed to me that yes, in the moment, the way it's shot, it's supposed to be that the actor 
you know, the character is now in a position where, hey, I can just do a, a live reveal mm-hmm. and that's it. Everyone gets the message at the same time and that's well and good. But I had a hard time believing that the character, the Dorothy Michaels, Michael Dorsey character hadn't already given some thought to how might I do this? It just seemed too, too random and unrehearsed and almost like, Oh my God, like where, where can I bring this story to wrap it all up? It just went on and on and on. I found it was uncomfortable to watch. It was, it was uncomfortable to listen to. It just really seemed so over the top to me. I, I, I had, again, I didn't really feel it was that, like you had all this, this movie had built up. You knew eventually there would be some reveal. And I thought, oh my God, this reveal is painful. <laughs> and it was like, okay, finally get to the point. Yay. He's taking off the makeup. I was like, oh my God. Uh, so that I didn't like, but then of course it's punctuated. It cuts back to Bill Murray, who in my opinion had the best line of the movie where he <laughs> says, that is one nutty. Hot yes, That's gotta be the That's a good line. Yeah. Yeah. That made me laugh. That, that, <laughs> I, again, I'd seen that one before in some mm-hmm. various clips. Um, so that, that worked for me. I think almost all of his lines were improvised in the movie. And probably that one was too. At all. Uh, so once again, we disagree on our movies and that's fine. That's what the podcast is all about. Would you care to give it a rating out of 10 for me, please? Hmm. We'll give it a six. Mm. I think six is being generous. Okay. I give it a six because I can't, I, I, when I watch it, I have to watch it from today's perspective. And from mm-hmm. today's perspective, I feel there are too many problems. So I have to give it a six. But if you had asked me this 20 years ago, I probably would rate it higher because I probably wouldn't have the same issues then that I have now because I, I, I know more. I know more now than I knew then. So, mm-hmm. but no, I'm going to get, do, I'm we, gonna say six. do we always need to look at Gen X movies through the current day lens, I guess is my question. Yeah, well, no. Or can we just enjoy it for what it is? No, well, yes and no. But I think mm-hmm. that's sort of the point of, of why you are, why we review these movies is to, you constantly talk about the rewatchability of these 80s movies. Right. And well, if it's rewatchable, part of the reason to me a movie is rewatchable is it sort of has stood the test of time and there's a lot in there to like. Um, so like a movie like Star Wars, mm-hmm. to me, that's more of a timeless movie. It, you can watch it. I mean, it happens to be a science fiction epic, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are other dramas that you could definitely watch from the seventies and eighties that I feel are very much in the moment that even if you looked at through today's lens, you wouldn't have the problem. But yeah, in this case, I just can't do it. So I got I six is I'm, I'm struggling to give it a six. I'm going to land on a six. And then that's fine. I just think it's got a great script. It's got great acting. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I'm giving it a 9.5. Damn! Wow, <laughs> that is uh, that is way more than I would give it. Yeah. I wouldn't come anywhere close. To yeah. it. But again, you you said it's in your top ten. It's the number ten. Mm-hmm. Your, your favorite movies of all time. I so I really I like expected it. A, a high re- review from you. But mm-hmm. um, so it is. Anyway, what it, is. it is what it is. All right. On that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. So it was uh, my turn to nominate a movie this week. So that means the trivia is over to you, Derek. What do you have for me? All right. So. I always like to try and change up the trivia a little bit, mm-hmm. partly to keep you on your toes and sure. partly because I know the people that listen to this show enjoy the trivia segment and let's try and, you know, make it entertaining for them as well. All right. Let's so do it. I, I got 10 questions for you. Okay. All of these questions okay. are about performers who appeared in a movie that played opposite to their gender. In some cases, it was a critical plot point. You saw the character transform. In some cases, it was just simple. Gender swapping was part of the, the original casting decision. 
Um, but it's in all cases, it's a man playing a woman or a woman playing a man. And uh, that's going to factor into the answers of all of these questions. Okay. okay? So I'm going to give you the name of the movie character and then a brief description about that character. I want you to name the performer and the movie they were in, because some of these are super obvious. So I need you to name the performer that does the gender swap okay. and the movie in which this appears. I, there are a couple here that are a little newer-ish, so you might struggle, but there are some really easy softball pitches right over the plate. I think you're going to do very well. I shall do my best. Okay. I'm going to start with a couple of difficult ones and then move a little more into your comfort zone. Okay. All right. So there's 10 questions. The first one. Malcolm Turner is an FBI agent with a knack for disguises who pretends to be an overweight, cantankerous Southern granny while staking out the house across the street where he hopes to capture a brutal bank robber who recently escaped from prison. Name the movie and the actor that I just described. Uh, an FBI guy that I have no idea. The real clue here is an overweight, cantankerous Southern granny. I don't know. That would be Martin Lawrence in Big Mama's house. Oh, God. No surprise that I didn't get that no. one. I, 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 that one I did. The next <laughs> one I think, I, I really think you're a struggle. It's one of these little movies that you may not even be aware of, but I, I had a good time when I watched okay. it. Okay. Robert Cuddy is the fictional, older, white, male partner of Laurel Ayers, a young black woman who invented him so that she could be taken seriously as a stockbroker. Who is the performer, the young black woman who plays Robert Cuddy and Laurel Ayers in this movie? I have no idea. It was Whoopi Goldberg, and the movie was called The Associate. Again, sorry, I didn't think you'd get never that heard one, of that. Before. I wanted. To... What year did that come out? I've never even heard. It, of it. was in the mid '90s. It, it was big when I was at Blockbuster. Oh, okay. It's actually a really good movie, oh, okay. and it has a lot of the same um, veins as Tootsie, but it's sort of the opposite where for this woman to be taken seriously in a profession dominated by men, she it's sort of like the Remington Steele idea. She has to create a fictional male, older white gentleman who's her partner in the firm in order to get work. And then eventually she has to pretend to be him in costume and drag in order to keep the ruse going. It was pretty good. Uh, I will okay. take your word for it. We're going to give you a whole bunch of easy ones in a row here now. Right. Okay. I'd be shocked if you don't get these next few. Daphne, is half of a musical duo on the run after witnessing a mob hit. Uh, I want the actor who played Daphne and the movie where it's from. I have no idea. Really? No idea. Jack Lemon, Some Like It Hot. Oh, Some Like It Hot. Oh, okay. Oh. oh, I was sure you were going to get that one. Oh, wow. All right. Okay. Sorry, man. These are a lot harder than I thought they would be. Okay. Again, I, th I think this one's a nice easy one. Edna Turnblad is a heavyset homemaker who only wants what's best for her plus-sized but extremely talented daughter. No idea. This is John Travolta in Hairspray. Oh, God. No idea. Oh. I mean, I'm not a big musicals person, mm -hmm. but this Hairspray was great. Okay. This version? Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. I'll be shocked if you don't get this one. Daniel Hillard is a gifted actor moonlighting as an elderly housekeeper so that he can secretly spend time with his children. Oh, is that Mrs. Doubtfire? Oh, I got one. Oh, I got one. Yes. 
Who played Mrs. Doubtfire? Oh, that was uh, Robin Williams. There you go. Nice. Okay, see, I knew you'd get that. Hey, you got one. Okay, I'm, sorry. I'm going to get one out of uh, ten. Yeah, all right. This one might be a little tougher for you. I don't know if you've seen this movie. Bernadette is a transgendered woman and part of a trio traveling across the Australian desert to perform in a cabaret show. Is it Priscilla, Queen of the Desert? Yes, yes. The Adventures of Priscilla, oh, Queen yes. of the Desert. Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp? Yes. Nicely oh. done, nicely Ooh. done. Have you ever seen it? No, I have not, but I heard it was fantastic. fantastic. Yeah. All right. Uh, we got four to go. Okay. Albert must disguise himself as a woman so that his son's conservative in-laws don't discover that he's half of a loving gay couple. Uh, I have no idea. This is Nathan Lane in The Birdcage. Oh, it's The Birdcage. Okay. I didn't want to hit you with another Robin Williams, so mm-hmm. I went there. Not that Robin Williams dresses up as a woman in this one, so mm. meet the criteria. Okay. I'll give you a hint with this next one. Please do. This movie has been a subject of at least two or three of my previous trivia questions and previous shows. For some reason, it seems to just check boxes as we go through topics. Okay. And I think every time you're like, I've never seen it, but I think you've got it right a few times because you know of it. All right. Brittany and Tiffany actually are actually disguised FBI agents offering themselves up as bait so that they can capture a would-be kidnapper in the act. Is it white chicks? It is white chicks. <laughs> well, the only reason I got that because you have mentioned that movie before, and it just looks so dumb. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and that was uh, Sean Wayans and Marlon Wayans right. play the FBI agents. All right. Oh, okay, you're gonna get these last two. I guarantee it. Okay. Again, I want the name of the performer and the name of the movie. All right. Victoria Grant is an actress pretending to be a man who is pretending to be a woman. Is it Julie Andrews and Victor Victoria? Yeah. Yes. All right. Ooh, yes. Okay. All right. Last one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anshel Mendel is a young Jewish woman who only dresses like a man so that she can receive an education in Talmudic law after her father dies. Ooh, Barbara Streisand and Yentl. Yes, yes. there we go. Yes! All right. Finish, strong finish. Strong finish. I got a couple ones there. Oh, that pulled me out of it. All right. So some of those were, were tougher. Uh, I, I knew the ones from the 90s you were less likely to get, but hey, yeah. a lot of our listeners probably got some of those. Oh, I'm sure they do. Uh, the 90s is a bit of a forgotten decade for me, as we've mentioned before. Uh, Okay, so next week, it's over to you to nominate a movie for us to review. So what have you got for us, Derek? So Chris, before I get into that, Mm -hmm. well, along this vein, you and I had a conversation previously, and I said, you know what? You nominate a movie, I nominate a movie. You nominate a movie, I nominate a movie. And I said, I think it might be a little more interesting, maybe for the next little while, Mm -hmm. when you nominate a movie, and then it becomes my turn to nominate a movie, I should have to nominate something that somehow ties together with your pick. Not necessarily mm-hmm. like a sequel, but maybe it stars the same performer or maybe it's featuring the same director. It's just some obvious connection uh, or thematic connection or something where your movie and my movie are connected. And so what I'm thinking tonight is I'll nominate a movie and I'll, that'll be connected in some way to Tootsie 
And then the next time we do movie reviews, I'll nominate something first, and then you will have to somehow nominate a movie that's tied to my pick in some way. Okay. Again, it could be the performer, the director, a Anything. supporting actor, whatever. Okay. okay. Well, I like that. So, I think it sounds like a great now. idea. Just, just again, just to yep. get the wheels turning a little For bit. For sure. So, uh, nice way to I'm tie not... the podcast together. Yes. Good job. Yeah, yeah, sort yeah, of okay. thematically. Like it. Yeah. So, I'm on board. I am going to nominate a movie next week. There's mm-hmm. actually one of the movies featured in the trivia tonight. And I'm going to lean on oh, the same idea don't be white of, of, no, uh, although Thank you. maybe make a last minute. No, <laughs> no. I'm not going to make audible and change it. I'm going to stick with what I, what I was going to So, um, Tootsie, as we have just discussed at great length features, a male character dressing up as a female character. So I would like you next week to watch the adventures of Priscilla queen of the oh, desert. Wow. That has, uh, two characters that dress in drag to um, to perform this cabaret show, and so you have uh, uh, Terrence Stamp's character, who is a transgendered woman. Uh, so again, identifies as woman. So we're not going to call that a gender swap in that same regard. Mm-hmm. But the two companions are both, you know, full on drag queens who dress up to perform in these cabaret shows. You mentioned you had never seen it before. Never I've seen probably it. seen this movie six or seven times. I think it's fantastic. Uh, the performances are great. It's got Hugo, Hugo Weaving from The Matrix and The Lord of the Rings. Okay. It's got Guy Pierce, who we watched in Memento not too long ago. He was also in L.A. Confidential. Uh, and it's got Terrence Stamp from Superman 2. Yes. Uh, and from the movies General you don't mention, Zod, right? Star, Trek, Star Trek, Star Wars prequels. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have these three exceptionally talented performers uh, who who had this movie where Hugo Weaving and um, and... Oh my God, I can't think of the other guy's name that I just mentioned. Uh, they're sort of at the beginning of their career. So this is sort of like a first movie. Guy Pierce are like, this is one of their first big movies. Mm-hmm. Whereas Terrence Stamp brings a certain amount of experience and gravitas to uh, to this film. And I love this movie. It's, it's, again, we'll talk about it more next week, but I really hope you enjoy it. I mentioned to my wife that I was going to nominate this and like she bolted right up and went, Oh my God, you have to let me know when you're watching this. I haven't seen this movie in a couple of years. We're going to watch this together. I can't wait. And, and, and sorry, to, like, when did this movie come out? It was in the mid nineties. Normally I have the year. Okay. In front of me. I want to say it was like 96, maybe. Um, it's a, it was an Australian movie and, um, yeah, it was, it was great. When I first saw it, I stumbled across it on, mm-hmm. uh, on like cable TV and I was like, I jumped in sort of halfway and I'm like, what is this? And, um, and yeah, once I came to, to understand what the movie was, I, it was from 1994. Here we go. I looked. Okay. Up. Um, yeah, I, I managed to find out what it was. I went back, I rented the movie and, uh, and I loved it. I fell in love with it. I actually own a copy of this movie. I haven't watched it in a while, but no, I just, I think it's great. It's, uh, yeah, I, I, again, we'll talk about it a lot more next week, but I really, I want you to take a watch. Hopefully, I know you and your wife tend to watch a lot of these films together. So uh, hopefully, mm-hmm. if she watches this with you, she may enjoy it. You can. She always you can sell her on uh, on Guy Pierce. I know yeah. she seemed to. Oh, yeah, she liked him, and and she always seems to say, "You got to watch better movies. These movies suck." You know, so maybe this will be the one that uh, that she enjoys. Who knows? But well, it uh, has a fantastic soundtrack as well, mm-hmm. which. Uh, a lot of '70s music, which I know you like. I do uh, more more in the disco vein because mm-hmm. again, they're they're cabaret performers, so they need something that's more you know danceable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, 
I think this has a lot going for it. Um, I, it doesn't make my top 10 of all time, but I definitely like this one a heck of a lot more than, I'm, than I ever liked Tootsie. So hopefully you find enough in here to enjoy. And if not, we'll come back next week and you can tell me what you love or hate about it. And we'll, we'll talk all about it. I will definitely watch it. I will definitely come back next week and we will definitely talk about it. And if you like listening to this podcast on a regular basis, maybe go back and watch Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert from 1994, you said it was? And then be prepared to, to listen to us review it next week. Um, until then, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you'll find Derek at Amaron underscore DM on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter at C McBrien. And of course, popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. In the meantime, until next week, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 